The last chapter of Job will be our attention this morning. Job chapter 42. This morning we will see the end of Job's suffering and the end of Job's life. How was it all going to end? Would he give up on God? Would he serve God only as long as the gifts were present? Would he serve God only in the good times? Job helps us to see that that evil does not get the final victory. It may feel like Satan and sin are winning against you in your Christian life, but if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that is not how it will ultimately end. Satan will not get the final victory. Let's read beginning in verse 7 through the end of the book. It came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job will pray for you, for I will accept him so that I may not be do with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did as the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Then all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before came to him, and they ate bread with him in his house. And they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversities that the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him one piece of money and each a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. He had seven sons and three daughters. He named the first Jemima and the second Keziah and the third Karen Hapuk. In all the land, no women were found so fair as Job's daughters. And their father gave them inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and grandsons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. Evil does not get the final victory. Job is vindicated. After reading this passage, we're left with many unanswered questions. What about Elihu? We have no mention of him. What about Job's wife? Other than the fact that they had more children, there's no mention of her. What about Satan? How did Satan respond to God being right? Why did, not, why did God not tell Job what had initially happened, the reason for it all from the very beginning? The best answer that I can give to you is that these answers are not important to the author. That the author focuses on what is his intention, and that is the restoration of Job's friends to God, verses 7 through 9, and the restoration of Job to God, verses 10 through 17, that God is restoring Job to his former way of life. First of all, we need to see the restoration of Job's friends. 
in verses 7 through 9. God gives an initial evaluation of them in verse 7. In the middle of the verse, He says, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of Me what is right as My servant Job has. First of all, we need to see the offenders. Who who was it that offended God? God says, My wrath is against you and against your two friends. Who are these people? Well, we know the first one is Eliphaz because the beginning of verse 7 tells us that. And we could say, well, maybe the other one of the other ones could be Elihu because we were asking the question before, what, what was God's evaluation of Elihu? He neither condemns or commends him. Maybe he's including Elihu in one of these two friends. But look down to verse 9 because we see which two friends God was talking about after he talks to them, to Eliphaz, and gives them instructions. Verse 9 says, So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did as the Lord told him. So the ones who did not speak rightly about God were these three friends who initially spoke to Job. There were three cycles of speeches. It began with Eliphaz giving one or two chapters to to Job as to what he thought the situation was and then followed up by Bildad and Zophar. It wasn't until later that Elihu came on the scene and apparently he was approved by God because God neither uh, says anything good or bad about him. The problem that God had with them is seen at the end of verse 7. Because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Notice at the end of verse 8, he says it again. Because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. The point that God is making here is that they had wrong theology. It wasn't completely wrong. It wasn't that everything that they said about God was wrong. But overall, when compared to Job's theology, it was wrong. They reduced their understanding of God to a simple formula. They they tried to put God in a box. That if you live this way, then God will do this. That if you live righteously, you will prosper. That if you live wickedly, you will suffer. They claim that, that if suffering ever came into a person's life, it always had to be as a result of evil. It had to be a result of something that that you had done, specifically for Job, that if he was suffering in such a, a harsh and difficult way, then he must have done something extremely evil. And that's why they say to him, in their speeches to him, Job, repent and be restored to your possessions. If you will simply repent of what you have done, okay, you've done something wrong, if you'll repent of that, then you'll go back to how you used to live. And Job says, no, I'm maintaining my integrity. I haven't done anything worthy of this type of suffering. Now, if Job had listened to them, then he would have shown that he was more concerned about being restored to his possessions than being restored to his God. See, if he would have confessed a sin that he hadn't committed, then what would he be more concerned with? His integrity before God or his desire to go back to those former possessions? This is what they were calling him to do. 
He would have had to have confessed a sin that he had not committed, which would have been an affront to God. And if Job would have listened to his three friends by repenting of something that he hadn't done, he would have proven God wrong before Satan. Remember, God says to to Satan, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He's upright. He fears you, or he fears me, and he turns away from evil. God would have been wrong because Job would have only sought God for what? Not for who he was, but for the gifts. See, when the gifts go away, I'll do whatever I can to get the gifts back. But that's not what Job wanted, was it? He didn't ultimately want all of his stuff back. He wanted to have that pure, that that close fellowship with God again. So God was angry with them because they had wrong theology. They, they wrongly applied their theology to Job. And they also never were recorded to have spoken to God. If you think back to when Job was speaking, he would often talk and respond to the three friends, and then he would go from there and, and go right into a conversation with God, almost without a pause. So, so Job would often turn to God in prayer and say, and please restore me. And he would ask God questions. And, and, and uh, obviously, Job did cross a line when he demanded God to give an answer. But, but the three friends are never, to re- never recorded to have spoken directly to God. They talk about God, but they never seem to have talked to God. And this is uh, perhaps also one of the reasons that, that, um, that God was angry with them. And another thing that they did, which we pointed out, which I pointed out when we went through this study, was that they spoke on behalf of God where God hadn't spoken. They spoke on behalf of God where God hadn't spoken. And, and basically, they were trying to to have the authority that comes from God in their conversation with Job, so that he would accept it. Hey, this is from God. But but it was a it was an authority that was not. Um, Reasonable because it wasn't where God had spoken. So they're trying to to try to figure out the depths of God's wisdom when they don't know the depths of God's wisdom, and that that was the struggle with Job. He's trying to figure out how this was all happening. They seem to have all the answers, and that's why I say they seem to put God in a box. We've got it all figured out. There's no mystery to God. You are righteous, you will prosper. You're wicked, you will suffer. It's that simple. But Job didn't see it that way. Notice what God calls Job two times to Eliphaz. Again, at the end of verse 7, You have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. It says the same thing in verse 8. As my servant Job has. In fact, in verses 7 and 8, he uses this phrase, my servant Job, four times. So, in God's condemnation against the three friends for speaking wrongly about God, he, he also commends Job. He says, you haven't been like my servant Job has been. Job never lost his earnest desire to serve God and God recognized that. that at the beginning, he said, Job is a, a man who fears me and turns from evil. And at the end, he says, he is my servant someone who I am happy to say follows me. 
Notice God's solution for these three friends in verses 8 and 9. God's solution. Now therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job will pray for you. Then skip down to verse 9. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zilphar the Namathite went and did as the Lord told them and the Lord accepted them. What was God demanding of these three men that they do? Well, at the very uh, surface, He's asking for seven bulls and seven rams. It appears as if He's asking for a sacrifice to be made on behalf of themselves so that God would atone for their sins. Remember, this was likely before God had put all the covenants in place and all the laws, the Levitical sacrifices that were set up in in the book of Leviticus. So this was probably before that, but it still seems to be that this this was a standard burnt offering that was that was given. In Numbers chapter twenty three verse one, Balaam offered a sacrifice of seven bulls and seven rams. So apparently even before the Mosaic um, law was set in place, the burnt offering like we have here for these three friends was seven bulls and seven rams. Whatever the case, the sacrifice was offered to both satisfy God's wrath and to provide a substitution for their sin. Okay? And this is what a sacrifice does. Isn't, is this not what Jesus did for us? That He both satisfied God's wrath against us. We deserved it. We should have been. We should have paid for it. But but Jesus satisfied God's wrath in being that sacrifice, and He also provided atonement for our sins. He He became the substitution for us. That's why we call it a substitutionary atonement for our sins. That in the Old Testament it was some sort of animal that would take the place of the human, and they would see that this animal had to die because of my sin. And we see the same thing in the cross that if it were not for my sin, then Jesus would not have had to die. That if it were not for our sin as a whole, Jesus would not have had to die. But, but, but it was because of our sin. And so in that sense, we see His death and we see that He had to die in order for us to be made right with God. And that's what this sacrifice does for these three friends. In order for any sacrifice to be accepted by God, it had to come from a conscious worshiper it had to be done through a legitimate priestly figure, which in this case was whom? It was Job, right? They had to go to Job. That's what it says in the middle of verse 8. And take your burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job will pray for you, for I will accept him. And then at the end of verse 9 it says uh, that they went and did as the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job. So the, God here was granting forgiveness for them that... that that this sacrifice was going to be accepted. It had to be an appropriate offering. And, of course, the offering had to be killed. Um, and then God would accept him. In fact, that's what we read just happened, that God did accept them when they went through this man, Job. Job certainly is this priestly figure that they have to go to. Uh, we understand that in the book of, uh, in the books of Moses, as the law is later set up, that, that you go now through a priest, that you have to take this sacrifice to a priest, and the priest will offer your sacrifice to God on your behalf. Here, it's done through this patriarchal figure, Job. and um, but, but there seems to be more than that. 
It seems that God is still working on Job here to see if Job is willing to offer forgiveness to these three friends that really have added to his suffering, have they not? He, he was already suffering enough, and yet they come along and they, they pour salt on his wound by saying that this is all your fault, Job. This cannot be innocent suffering. And they make it worse for him. And so what, they, what Job has to do now is he has to accept the forgiveness or he has to accept these three friends' offering and really offer them forgiveness. Otherwise, he could say, no, you don't deserve to be forgiven by God. But, but Job, of course, is gracious and does exactly what they ask him to do. And God does exactly what he told them that they would do. And so on the part of these three friends, it seems to be genuine forgiveness. And I say that because they turned from their sin in in supplying this sacrificial animal. They turned from their sin and they also turned to God. That's what repentance is. It's turning away from sin and it's turning to God. They turned away from their sin by offering this animal and they turned to God by going through this priestly figure, Job. And so that's why I say it's a restoration, first of all, of, of these three friends. But secondly, we see the vindication of Job. Job didn't need to be restored necessarily spiritually. You don't see any account of Job offering a sacrifice for himself. But he is vindicated in the sense that he is justified. Look at verse 11. Then all of his uh, brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before came to him and they ate bread with him in his house and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversities that the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him one piece of money and each a ring of gold. Family and friends come to comfort and console him. This was the original intention of the three friends. Turn back to chapter 2, verse 11. This was the original intention of the three friends, that they were coming to comfort Job. Chapter 2, verse 11. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they came, each one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. And they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and to comfort him. What was their purpose in coming? Was it to condemn him? Not at all. It was to comfort them, to comfort Job. Turn to chapter 16. Of course, we know how they did. They failed. But this is Job's assessment of them. Chapter 16, verse 2. After hearing a couple of these men speak, this is what, how Job answers in verse 2 of chapter 16. I have heard many such things. Sorry comforters are you all. Or miserable comforters you are, as other trans translations have. They came originally to comfort him in his adversity, but they failed. Instead of bringing comfort, they brought more sorrow. And so turn back to chapter 42, because it's interesting that, that Job would still need comforting. Because look at verse 10. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Then all his brothers and sisters came to comfort him. Now why... Why did Job still need comforting? Did he not have restored to him all that he had lost? 
It's because, as you know, if you've gone through deep suffering, the the trial, the, the, the hurt that comes from the loss that you experience does not go away when everything is restored. The hurt of that lost loved one doesn't leave you. <clears throat> Dr. Don Carson illustrates it this way. He says, A survivor of the Holocaust has not suffered less because he now lives in a comfy house in Los Angeles. Right? He still feels the hurt. In the same way, Job still needed to be comforted because of, notice, the end of the verse says, or the second part of the verse, verse 11, and they consoled him and comforted him. Comforted him. Why? For all the adversities that the Lord had brought on him. We see again here God's sovereignty over his suffering. That in some way God stood behind Job's suffering. That yes, Satan caused it. Remember, Satan stood before God and said, well, let me do all these things to Job. And Satan takes responsibility in that way. But God takes a sense of responsibility as well in the sense that He stands behind it. That's why Job at the beginning says, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job recognized it before and the author here recognizes again that in some way God brings these adversities on him through His permissive will. And then at the end of the verse, it says that each gave him a piece of money or a piece of silver and a gold ring. Uh, could be a housewarming gift that they're giving. More likely, it's a token of compensation for all the things that he has suffered. Notice the extent of Job's blessing. Uh, we saw in verse 10 that, it, that God increased all that Job had twofold. And then in verses 12 and 13, we see what that means. Verse 12, the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. We won't take time to go back to chapter 1, verse 3, but if we did, we would see that the amount that he now has here in chapter 42, verse 12, is twice as much as what he had before. All those things were taken away. Now he's been given them all back. Notice at the end of, or notice verse 13, it seems as if he received double his children as well. He had seven sons and three daughters. Now, what we would expect here is that he would receive 14 sons and six daughters because that's what exactly what he had before. He already had seven sons and three daughters. All of them died. Remember when the house collapsed? Why did not God not give him 14 sons and six daughters if he was going to double all that Job had. Well, I think he did have double of what he had. And that's because the first ten would would be re reunited with him when he made it to heaven, when he died. And now he is able to live with the second ten children. And uh, so I, I think that's the best explanation of verse 13. And so if you agree with that, if you would grant that explanation, then you also have to agree that when animals die, and this is just a side, this is for free, when animals die, they don't go to heaven. Because the first 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys that died, they would also be waiting for him in heaven. And so we would see in verse 12 that he would only get the exact same amount. All right, so you can think about that. The daughter's names are given in verse 14. 
and it's hard to understand exactly what the author's doing here. Why mention these three daughters' names when he doesn't even mention the sons' names? It seems as if these names have some significance. Jemima means dove or daylight. Keziah means sweet-smelling spice, probably like cinnamon. And Karen Hapuk was a highly prized eyeshadow of the day. And um, so it, it probably has to do with the joys of restoration that, that God was showing through the names of these three daughters that he was restoring Job's uh, lifestyle, his, his prosperity. Notice the daughter's inheritance in verse 15. In all the land, no women were found so fair as Job's daughters, and their father gave them inheritance among their brothers. So part of their inheritance is that, or part of their, um, the way that they were known is that they were the most beautiful girls, women in the, in the land, and they were also beneficiaries, inheritors, which would be unusual for, the, for anyone in the ancient Near East. To, for, for women to, and to be part of their father's inheritance. And that probably speaks to the fact that Job was just so wealthy. And Job had so much to go around that he was able to give of his inheritance to his seven sons, but have so much more left over that he could give to his daughters as well. And I think that's why there's focus there on verses 14 and 15 on the three daughters and no focus on the sons at all because they would have... Uh, uh, that's why at the end of the verse it says they received their inheritance among their brothers. That was already well known that the brothers would receive part of the inheritance. Notice verse 17 because we have a significant statement here at the end of the book. And Job died an old man and full of days. He died an old man and full of days. This phrase is used only of the most favored of God's servants in the Bible. Abraham in Genesis chapter 25 verse 8 is recorded to have died an old man and full of years. Isaac chapter 35 of Genesis verse 29 he breathed his last old and full of days. David, 1 Chronicles 29:28 died at a good age full of days. And then Jehoiada the priest, 2 Chronicles 24:15 grew old and full of days and died. And this is in keeping with what Job really desired for his life. He didn't desire that all of his possessions would be restored. That was not ultimately what he wanted. In fact, at one time he said, I, I desire for God to speak more than my daily food, more than my necessity to live. I'd rather have God speak. And, and earlier in chapter 6, verse 10, he says, I long most of all that I could go to the grave not having denied the Holy One." If that's how I could end my life without giving up on God, that is what I want. Why, Job, chapter 19, verse 25 to 27 tells us. Because I know that my Redeemer lives, and I know that in the end, He will restore me. That it may not be in this lifetime. I may not be vindicated in this lifetime, but I know in the life to come that my Redeemer lives. Job desired most of all not to give up on God at the end of his life. And now we find at the very end of the book that he had not done that. He did not give up on God. He did not curse God and die. He did not desire those possessions more than he desired his relationship with God. And so Job was vindicated on earth. He was justified. 
but his final vindication would have to wait until the resurrection of Jesus Christ when Christ conquered sin and death through His uh, atoning sacrifice on the cross when He showed His power over death. And that's the day that we will all be vindicated as well. The day when Jesus Christ comes back and, and, uh, and, we, and our bodies are resurrected to be like His. Few thoughts I want to uh, make as we consider what we've looked at today. First of all, the blessing of God. Here we see that Job was physically, financially, and ancestrally or familially blessed because he endured suffering and obeyed God. And so the question I want to put before us with regard to God's blessing is are we guaranteed? physical, financial, and family prosperity if we endure and obey the Scriptures? Are we guaranteed that in this lifetime? Because Job seems to have received that. This seems to be a reward for him being faithful to God. So, are we guaranteed that same thing? First of all, in order to answer that, we need to consider the purpose of Job's suffering. What was the purpose of Job's suffering from God's perspective? God wanted to magnify His greatness, His glory, by proving Satan wrong. Okay, So that was, the, that was one purpose that we saw, Job didn't see, but one purpose that we saw at the very beginning of the book. God wanted to prove Satan wrong by showing that Job would continue to follow Him. And the second purpose is that we learn from Elihu in his speeches in chapter 32, chapters 32 through 37 is that God wanted to do what to Job? He wanted to refine Job like, like a, a refiner refines gold. He wanted to, to purify him even more. And so now what has happened at the end of Job's life is that both of those purposes have been satisfied. God has been proven right before Satan. That's why he says, Job has spoken of me what is right when he's talking to Elihu. My servant Job has spoken of me what is right. So he has proven God right before Satan. He has not cursed God and died. Job has not abandoned God when the gifts were all gone. So God was proven right. The second purpose was that Job would be refined. And was Job refined in this suffering? What was Job's response in chapter 42, verse 2? I know that no plan of yours can be thwarted. I know that you can do all things. And then later on, verse 5, I've heard of you with my ears, but now I've seen you with my eyes. And what does he say? I retract. I repent in dust and ashes. Job now sees himself more clearly because now he sees God more clearly. And so the purpose, the secondary purpose of Job being refined in suffering is now satisfied because Job now sees God for who he is. He sees God a little bit more clearly. And so he repents. So, in order to answer that question, are we guaranteed prosperity if we follow God, if we obey God, if we endure through suffering? The first uh, way that we have to understand, the first thing we need to understand is that we need to remember God's purpose in suffering. Secondly, we need to understand what biblical vindication is. 
Okay, I've been using this word vindication today. And when I say that, I simply mean justification or to be made right or to be declared to be right. Okay, so let me try to illustrate this for you. Suppose I said that last night the Detroit Tigers came back from 15 runs down in the bottom of the ninth to win and none of you believed me. I tried to fill in some more details. Vindication for me would be for you to watch the highlights when you get home today. Vindication for me would be for you to pick up your newspaper and see that they came back from 15 runs down in the bottom of the ninth to win. They, I would be seen to be right now. Now, by the way, that didn't actually happen. They did win yesterday, but, but they didn't come back from that. But I'm just trying to illustrate a point. So, so when I talk about biblical vindication, I mean that right now it's not clear before our eyes whether we are right or we are wrong. Okay? It's not clear before our unbelieving family and friends whether this whole serving God thing is a good thing or if it's just a lot of waste of time. It's a lot of religious talk. If God is really worthy to be served. But on that day of judgment, when the Lord stands as judge before all the world, no one's going to question whether your service to God was right or not. It will be as if they're watching the highlights or reading the newspaper and seeing, wow, they were right. So, so in order to answer this question about whether God promises prosperity, we need to understand what vindication is. And that is that we are seen now to be right. So, what about vindication for us on the earth? Are we going to be seen to be right? That's really what happens for Job. See, Job says, Job says, I was righteous before God. This suffering came on me even though I'm innocent. Even though I didn't deserve this suffering. And his friend says, no, that can't be the case. Well, they finally read the newspaper at the end when God stands before them and says, you were wrong when you spoke about me, unlike my servant Job. Job was right. So Job in this life was vindicated before them. Are we promised vindication before God? Is it guaranteed for us that we will receive prosperity in this life? That if we just live perfectly enough, that if we, if we uh, endure through trials well enough, then God will eventually give us perfect health, eventually give us a perfect family, a perfect job, a perfect memory, a huge bank account. Is that what God has promised to us? Is that what we should take from our study of Job? That if we enduring, endure suffering in this life, God will, in, God will reward us in this life. And the answer is no. It's not guaranteed in this lifetime like it was for Job. The point of Job is that in the long term or the long run, God does not forsake His servants. God does not give a blind eye or, or have a blind eye to those who follow Him. Now, we're able to see that in Job's lifetime, but that's not always the case. And if you don't believe me, then read the last six verses of Hebrews 11 where you see some people were sawn in two, 
Some people died without having received the promise. Lots of great stories about people who were able to see God's great works in their lifetime in Hebrews 11. But the last six verses are very um, discouraging, I guess you could say, in some ways. But in other ways, it's very encouraging because we see that we will not necessarily be vindicated in this lifetime. And the way that, that we're being treated as far as the circumstances of this life may not be, the key word being may, may not be an indication of what God thinks about us in heaven. Right? That there is a possibility that we could be living righteously and yet still be suffering physically, financially, family relationships. Well, we could say, well, maybe Job was more spiritual than all those people in Hebrews, all those people in Hebrews 11. Maybe Job was more righteous than all of them, and that's why they didn't receive the promise on this earth. And if they would have just been more righteous like Job, then they would have received all sorts of blessing like Job, this twofold blessing. Well, look at the Apostle Paul, the most persecuted Christian of all time. Was he any less righteous than Job? Perhaps you could argue, yes. He, maybe he was. That's why he didn't receive all these rewards. But then I would give you the illustration of Jesus Christ. Did he receive vindication on this earth before he died? Did Jesus Christ stand before all of his accusers and they they be able to see, wow, look at all this prosperity that he has. What was the end of Jesus' life like? There's something left only for the worst of criminals. And so I say to you that you are not guaranteed to have perfect prosperity or even substantial prosperity in this lifetime even if you endure through suffering. Jesus said, Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but I don't even have a place to lay my head at night. Prosperity is not guaranteed in this lifetime. Isaiah 53 says of our Lord, He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He left no inheritance for his family. He even had to pull money from the mouth of a fish to pay his taxes. Jesus was in no way vindicated in his lifetime. So, we can't take this story and say, well, if Job was vindicated in his lifetime, then that guarantees that if I live like Job, if I live well enough, for God, then He will do the same for me. Now, the problem is that we sometimes we take vindication too far. We take this, I guess you could call it retribution, where God prospers those who are righteous and He punishes those who are wicked. Now, in the long term, is that true? Is that what will happen throughout eternity? Yes. But if we take that and, and, and put it too closely, if we make it too simplistic or too mathematically precise, 
that, that if I do this, then God has to do this, then we're going to be disappointed. Jesus would have been disappointed because that's not the way God treated him when he was perfectly righteous. And when we receive any sort of suffering, we're going to immediately think, what did I do wrong and what can I do now do better? This is what Job's three friends were thinking. They believed that if a person obeyed, then God would treat them with favor. And if a person disobeyed, they were treated with suffering. But we know from our understanding of Scripture that, and from our own experience, that there are many times when the wicked prosper and when the righteous suffer. Just think about some of those, those cases even now. Maybe in your own experience or maybe from people in this church or maybe from people in your family who are unbelievers. The wicked often suffer in this lifetime and the righteous Excuse me. The wicked often prosper and the righteous often suffer. And what's amazing is that our God is merciful to them, to the wicked. And He's merciful to the righteous in their times of suffering. So, what we need to learn is that we can't treat every form of suffering in this life as punishment from God. And we can't think that every time that we receive blessing in this life, that God is doing it because we did something right. That's not necessarily the case. Think of it this way. If rewards were earned by us every time we were faithful to God, then it would be impossible for God to be merciful in suffering. If God rewarded us every time we were faithful to Him, then what would that mean when we are suffering? It would mean that God is only merciful when He rewards us. Not when we're suffering. And yet, the psalmist can say that, that, that God was merciful even in times of suffering. That God's mercy is everlasting. It never stops. God's mercy is, seems to be even more, even greater in times of suffering. If you've gone through it yourself, you, you know. And God is both merciful and loving. He's both merciful and loving to you as a believer, whether your bank account is overflowing or overdrawn. He is both merciful and loving whether your health is prospering or it's hanging by a thread. He's merciful and loving whether your family is family time is peachy or creepy or whether your job is fantastic or fanatic God is merciful and his mercy endures forever in the end Job never learned of God's conversation with Satan did he he never learned why this all came about he doesn't have all the answers at the end he doesn't say oh now I get it instead he says now I understand who you are, God, and I submit myself to you. But Job gained something that I think we all would greatly desire if we consider it. And that's not, not, I'm not talking about a loving, beautiful family necessarily, or the greatest possessions in the world, or even perfect health like Job had at the end. 
but rather Job gained a new perspective, a better knowledge of God. He stopped hinting that God was unjust. We would love to have what Job got, a new perspective. But what we find in Scripture is that we often don't get that knowledge and greater love for God, that deeper love for God that Job got. We're not going to get it like him, for sure, without suffering. We would love to have what he had, but but without the suffering. The fire is refined. uh, Gold, excuse me, is refined through fire. And so it takes... The, the, the fire of testing often to strengthen your knowledge and your love for God. Obviously, that has to come through the, the Scriptures. But, but often, God uses suffering to help us to see Him more clearly. And the true test of our faith is, is whether our knowledge of God is strong enough and deep enough that when we are faced with deep trials that seem to go on without end, that we're able to, to grapple with the hard questions and still not turn away from God. And that's the challenge for you. If you're not going through suffering right now, you need to be resolved that when you do, and when those tough questions come, that you're able to say with Job, I don't know what you're doing, God, but I know that you are God and that no plan of yours can be thwarted. God is faithful. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that He will not allow you to, to be tempted beyond what you can bear, but with every temptation will provide a way of escape so that you will be able to stand up under it. 1 Corinthians 10.13 We often suffer. We sometimes understand, but will we always trust God? What can you do now? to increase your knowledge and your grip on God so that when times of suffering come, you will be able to stand up and have faith and have the patience of Job, have the perseverance of Job that we read about in the book of James. What can you do now? Let's bow together for prayer. Father, we are thankful that You are the God who is in control of all things and who cares about Your people. You don't turn a blind eye to our circumstances or forget what is going on in our lives. The proof of Your care is seen in how You clothe the grass of the field and how You know about all the sparrows and how each one falls to the field. None of, them, none of that happens without Your knowledge. You know how to care for us in times of suffering. And You know that You will not take us beyond what we can bear. That there is no case, there's never a circumstance where we can say that it was unbearable. Because You only give us what we can handle. And so when these circumstances that come into our lives that seem as if they are unbearable, we would gladly be able to say that that we trust You. We recognize that 
that Your purposes are best and that whatever You do in our lives, it is for Your glory and it is for our good. How can we question You when You've shown Your love to us by sending Your Son to die for us? Who of us would like to give up our child to die for the sake of others? And yet You did that for us. And so we thank You for Your love and Your care and Your provision. And we ask for Your forgiveness for desiring the gifts that You give to us more than we desire You. When we go through times of suffering, we look for ways in which we can improve our relationship with You. And rightfully so, we should. But sometimes You're simply using those to strengthen our faith to increase our understanding and our love for You and and our grip on Your Word. And so we pray that You would help us to get our grip off of the things of this world and see those things as of little importance compared to the relationship that we have with You. That each one of us as individuals would resolve to persevere under trial and to seek Your best in times of suffering. and that we would resolve to come along and help those who are suffering as well. Help us to learn to love and and grow in our faith even now while suffering may not be as intense as it may come. Give us strength to endure so that we can prove You right before Satan if that's what's going on. But at the very least, that we can prove Your worth that You are worthy to be served apart from Your gifts. That You are worthy to be served apart from perfect health because You are the God of the universe. We long to have a deeper relationship with You. So we pray that You would strengthen our faith as we seek to please You in this world that is opposed to You, in this world that crucified our Savior, Your Son. We pray all these things in His name whom we love. Amen.